Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Gernot Wagner. Gernot Wagner is a climate economist at Columbia Business School. He is the author of Geoengineering the Gamble, published in 2021, Climate Shock, the Economic Consequences of a Hotter Planet, published in 2016, along with Dr. Martin Weitzman. And But Will the Planet Notice How Smart Economists Can Save the World, published in 2012. Previously, he was a professor at NYU and a founding co-director of Harvard University's Solar Geoengineering Research Program. He started off his career as a consultant at the Boston Consulting Group and was a lead senior economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Dr. Wagner received his master's degree in economics from Stanford University and his bachelor's and PhD from Harvard University. Uh, So welcome, uh, Professor. Uh, How's it going in uh, New York? It is hot but otherwise all good. <laughs> good to be here. Hi. It's also hot in Norway. Uh, so while preparing for this interview, you found your background to be very interesting. If you could take us back to 1998, when you were starting off your undergrad and how you evolved until 2007, until you, you finished off your PhD, I would be particularly interested in your influences because I saw that you wrote your thesis related to green accounting and one of, let's say, the several economists that inspired you, Martin Weitzman, the first a major contribution that you wrote in, in this article, A Gift Keeps on Giving, was a green national accounting. Uh, well, well spotted. So it brings me way back. But actually, it was, as I've told this story a couple of times, I, I hope I'm getting the date right now. So it was a Thursday, September 17th, 1998. I'm pretty sure it was a Thursday. So I'm pretty sure I'm getting a weekday, right? But I went to Marty Weitzman's office hours, right? I was 18. He was basically the first professor I ever met. And uh, that was first week freshman year in college. And I basically showed up and said, well, you're an environmental economist. I would like to be like you one day. What do you know? How do you do this? What do you do? And so actually the funny story there, so it wasn't green accounting. What he uh, did, he sat me down and uh, you know, instead of 15 minutes, right? Usually when you're sort of as a freshman, you're right in college, you meet a prof, right? It's sort of like, you know, take some math, take some intro econ, right? Don't do drugs and we'll see each other again, right? In a few years. And it was like 45 minutes or so in his office. And he sat me down with this yellow legal pad and the number two pencil. It's sort of his characteristic tools of the trade. And he walked me through how research is done by using uh, prices versus quantities as sort of this example, right? And like the whole story about how it started out as being about uh, Soviet economics versus US market economy. And then his paper got rejected, right? It's called research for a reason. You search, you search, and you search again. And then he rewrote it. uh, It's prices versus quantities of the environmental uh, sense, environmental regulation, um, and how that paper published in 1974, set him out in the direction of becoming an environmental economist. Okay, I can't claim I understood most of what was happening to me while I was sitting there, like having him rederive some equations in front of my eyes. But yeah, that was fascinating to watch. And um, well, it certainly convinced me that this was the right thing 
to do, that what I wanted to do, and that I wanted to study economics and environmental science and so on. And actually, I think it might have been the same week or the week after that I then met Dale Jorgensen. Basically, same idea, right? So, dear professor, um, do you have 10 minutes for me? I would love to you know, be you one day kind of thing. And he had just finished working on a National Academy study called Nature's Numbers at the time, which was basically a U.S. National Academy study on green accounting. And there was this appendix, I still remember, Appendix A on the next obvious step is to create U.S. timber accounts. And I can tell you, so I don't know whether it was sort of along the lines of, oh, yeah, this is a really fascinating topic. You should be working on this. Or whether it was a way of him saying, you know, yeah, here's something easy for you to do. Go away. And, you know, when you're done, come again. And it's going to take you four years. So, you know, I will see you again. So I went away with this and decided more or less that, yeah, this timber accounts thing, you know, creating like basically counting trees, standing timber and writing a value of the standing timber. Well, short version, it turned into my undergraduate thesis. So um, he hi he ended up hiring me, Dale Jorgensen ended up hiring me as an RA, a research assistant that first summer after my freshman year in college. And I remember research back then, so it wasn't that long ago, but yeah, the way to do this basically was to write to 50 U.S. Forest Service state agencies, ask them to ship the printed reports of their state-level timber accounts, and then type it into Excel. That's literally what I did that summer of my freshman year, um, and basically create this database that then eventually I used for some very simple math in the end, but deriving U.S. timber accounts for my undergrad thesis you know, three years later in 2003. And then you did your, your PhD eventually, right? Yes. Okay, so I left Harvard. I was supposed to get my PhD at Stanford, but actually, okay, the, the full version, I didn't tell you what happened on September 17th, 1998. I also, uh, turned out later was in the same room as my soon-to-be girlfriend, now spouse of 21 years. Um, so I met Thierry that uh, a couple months later, um, but we figured out later that uh, we were in the same room together for the first time. And it turns out that room was when Kofi Annan gave a speech. So our 12-year-old, of course, now is called Annan. But why is it relevant for Stanford? So I was supposed to get my PhD at Stanford, but Siri got into medical school back in Boston. So my very first meeting at Stanford with Larry Golder uh, at Stanford was, you know, thank you for accepting me and um, getting me here. I will leave with a master's after a year and reapply for a PhD back uh, in Boston, in Cambridge, uh, which is what I did. So I left Stanford with a master's and did my PhD back at Harvard, uh, you know, started a year after and finished in uh, 2007. Graduated in 2007 with my PhD. Awesome. So you graduated around the, uh, let's say, the beginning of the global financial crisis, uh, and you spent <laughs> you spent a year at not, not awesome, but yes, exactly. <laughs> so, well, actually, yes, very lucky, right? Okay, so I mean, here is a you know broader life lesson that so often, right? That most of life is just dumb luck, right? So so yes, I graduated in 07. Uh, and actually, so you mentioned BCG as my first job. So actually, my very first job was I wrote for the editorial board of the Financial Times um, on a fellowship, right? So I knew that there was only a, a limited uh, appointment. Um, and 
I also knew more or less, or I'd like to think that I knew, but that I would be able to join EDF soon thereafter. So basically in the, I guess, in the 10 months between Financial Times and uh, EDF, I spent 10 months at, uh, at BCG, Boston Consulting Group, um, which was a very useful uh, sort of a year, uh, basically, frankly, focused on climate and energy. And right, so this was sort of very early days for these consultancies when they started to basically hire PhDs and started to specialize in specific topics. And yeah, I was sort of the carbon markets person. Um, on some fairly interesting cases on, I guess, three continents, uh, three different continents, working on you know carbon market design, clean energy investments, and you know, sort of early days. But yes, that was two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, um, and right about then, right, like had I graduated a year later, I don't think I would have gotten a job at BCG, right, or, or any job for that matter, you know, outside academia. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so 2008, I joined EDF, and then I spent um, almost a decade, eight years or eight and a half years at EDF. Uh, what's interesting is when you joined uh, EDF, uh, that's when the first commitment period of the Kyoto Protocol started. And I can see several of your publications on Google Scholar are related to Kyoto or carbon finance or uh, climate finance or carbon tax, and carbon and trade, uh, uh, cap and trade, sorry. Uh, so how did your ideas evolve uh, during the like first few years at EDF? Oh, yeah, so actually, maybe, again, not to, not to make it too personal, but the full story there is so my boss at EDF uh, was Nat Cohane, who was also uh, the teaching fellow. So he was a PhD student at Harvard in 1998 when I was uh, joined for college. So he was a teaching fellow in uh, my first environmental economics class. Rob Stevens was the professor, Nat Cohen, the teaching assistant teaching fellow. And uh, he hired me to EDF, actually with a very specific purpose. Um, so at the time was a big... Obama era climate policy push here in the US, right? Waxman Markey, cap and trade, emissions trading. So my first focus, the first year, year and a half, two years at EDF was largely domestic climate policy. And that law passed the House of Representatives on June 26, 2009, when it passed the House. Um, it fizzled in the Senate, didn't go anywhere. Uh, you know, big failure at the end, which was when I uh, shifted most of my own attention from U.S. domestic policy, actually in, in two directions. On the one hand, U.S. state level, on the one hand, as opposed to federal level and, and international. Um, and uh, yeah, so actually maybe one of the sort of milestones in those years was, uh, it came a few years later, the publication came a few years later, but I then ended up joining a team of co-authors, there were six of us total, who co-wrote the World Bank's Emissions Trading Handbook. And uh, well, actually, in, in many ways, that's, you know, it's a, still a fairly relevant publication as far as these things go. And actually, as far as these sort of World Bank documents go, right, there's always sort of this tail end uh, where, you know, some are wildly popular and many of these working papers you know have a few dozen downloads in this case it was translated into several languages including chinese and actually uh, including the first couple languages were ukrainian and turkish because essentially right the eu had its emissions trading system and if you had ambition to become a member of the european union 
which Ukraine and Turkey had at the time, um, and even you know a prospect of that happening, then uh, you needed to implement a cap and trade system, right? So in some sense, this emissions trading handbook was sort of aimed at you know middle level bureaucrats in. Yes, in this case, Istanbul and uh, in Kiev, to implement a cap and trade system. And Chinese was another language it was translated in. Um, so that meant working fairly actively with NDRC. So NRDC is the other U.S. environmental group, NDRC, the National Development Reform Commission in China, um, charged with implementing these regional cap and trade trials, and by now a national system. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of sort of bilateral direct engagement in you know, helping on the sidelines. Right? I can't claim I had a core role in, in implementing the Chinese cap and trade system, but sort of helping on the sidelines with some sort of specific design elements of that cap and trade program. We'll discuss China later on, but uh, if we can take a step back before you publish mm-hmm. the uh, emissions trading in practice guide, uh, you published a book, But Will the Planet Notice? And I'd like to know what was your impetus for that. You, you try to fo- try to discuss how we shouldn't focus as much as we do on individual action and more on smart economics and market-based incentives. So how did you come out to write that book? I mean, frankly, it was more or less an English translation of an economics textbook. So, so yes, that was my first, actually my first English book. I wrote a German one before, but let's not talk about that one. Uh, so it was basically a, an accessible guide to how to think about you know, it's some sort of misguided economics, right? Misguided market forces being the problem and, well, guiding econ- market forces, getting the economics right, uh, being the solution to climate change, right? And uh, yeah, so the title and in some sense, the, you know, the introduction, sort of the, how to channel, I mean, how I spoke about the book at the time was very much as a sort of juxtaposition to you know, individual action will do it, right? Will solve climate change, right? If we all just got together and did more of X, uh, we would solve this. And actually at the time, so my, my first, actually my very first New York Times op-ed at the time was basically a serialization of the book or a, you know, an 800 word version of the book's main argument. And the title of the op-ed was Going Green and Getting Nowhere. Um, and it was basically about... Uh, well, actually, this, it's still relevant today, unfortunately, frankly, um, but how voluntary action and, frankly, voluntary offsets just won't do. So the story I told in the op-ed uh, and the book was on uh, voluntary carbon offset uh, that airlines offer, right? And sort of the thought experiment in some sense or the question, like, why would an airline offer passengers to buy offsets? Right? Forest offsets, uh, cheap offsets, not to make anyone feel bad about flying, right? Uh, but to make them feel good about flying and do more of it, right? I mean, that's, of course, right? Duh, right? That's is sort of economics 101. And yeah, s- thinking through that out loud and basically saying, look, this is the most compelling argument I have seen myself actually to this date, right? Why, well, voluntary action along these lines just can't work. Right, because, well, you know, why would an airline, American Airlines, United, or whoever, right, basically, right, first they make sure you pay for the ticket, they make sure that it happens, right, and then they offer you the chance to spend another ten bucks to offset the emissions that your flight will have caused, and well, that just 
cannot be the solution. Right? Regardless of whether offsets are good or bad in general, and whether right, forest carbon offsets are credible and so on, and whether it's worth it to preserve trees, yes, it is, of course. And we need to find intelligent ways to doing that. Uh, and carbon markets may well play a real role, but volunteerism just can't be the answer. I think it might be a step backwards, right? It's basically makes you feel good about your action, even though uh, the offset itself might be worthless, right? That's a real problem. But then primarily, it encourages you to fly more. And of course, that's, well, that's where economics comes in, right? And thinking through um, what are the Econ 101 implications or Econ 101 reasons why airlines offer those offsets. And what is the real solution? I'd like to move on to your second book, Climate Shocks, that you wrote with uh, Marty Weitzman. Uh, this came around the end of your period at EDF, but you also, in that book, which was focused on climate sensitivity and, and fat tales, uh, you also mentioned uh, solar geoengineering. And I think that paved the way to becoming a co-founding director of the Hub Solar Geoengineering Research Program. So could you tell us about how that evolved? So, yeah, so first of all, consider me impressed. I mean, you know my CV better than I do. So yes, yeah, I mean, yes, exactly, right? So we wrote it, I guess, okay, so this first book came out, Will the Planet Know This? Um, and it, okay, this now sounds maybe funny or arrogant for that matter, but Marty Weitzman, uh, who I, you know, I did know since my freshman year in college and he you know, spent time working together doing my PhD, but he never co-authored anything. Or to be frank, Marty Weitzman is not necessarily, wasn't known for co-authoring papers or anything. Like there's a couple throughout his career, including one, by the way, in Russian. So he taught himself Russian and co-authored a paper with a Russian economist in Russian. So yes, impressive. <laughs> uh, so it turned out he picked up my book, my first book, uh, liked it, and basically called me up and said, okay, so I'm thinking about trying to find a bigger audience for this idea where I think I'm already think I'm onto something here with this fat tails argument, and I'd like to find a better way to tell this story. And so, yeah, so, you know, that was like 2013 or so, right? So these books take a long time to, to from start to finish. <laughs> so maybe 2012, 2013, when we first had you know, first conversations. Um, and it came out in 2015, right? So it took us a year or so to write it and uh, another year to come out. And yes, uh, that book was, you know, it's sort of split in two parts. The first half, more or less, is the Fat Tales story, right? Where, you know, in some sense, the short version is, what we know about climate change is bad enough. The things we don't know are potentially much, much worse. And the example of climate sensitivity, right? Just like it basically the uncertainty only goes one way and not the good way, right? Sort of it's the bad end of the tail of the distribution. And that was half the book. And yes, the other half, um, and in some sense, right, to basically complement the the story about how it's the unknowns and the unknowables that might drive the final outcome. Well, here's an introduction to geoengineering, right? solar geoengineering, solar radiation management. And yeah, so I wrote that with Marty, who had also thought in peer-reviewed articles about the implications of solar geoengineering and the free driver effect and so on. And actually, the, the origin there was actually the word free driver. So Marty and I first wrote this in a I believe, uh, foreign policy article, um, I think the title was Playing God, 
in the, the 2000 words or so, or 1200 words, were about sort of incredible economics of solar geoengineering, which I think actually, I think now this incredible economics actually is a title I just stole from Scott Barrett, I believe. He wrote a paper called The Incredible Economics of Geoengineering. And yeah, we made this sort of free driver point and so on, uh, which then Marty wrote up formal in a model that ended up as the second half of the book. And yes, right, it led to um, actually somebody else, David Keith, basically calling me up and saying, oh, hey, this is interesting. Are you by any chance interested in you know, sort of jumping ship from EDF, uh, coming back to Harvard and starting this research program? And yes, actually the story there, which I'm not sure I've ever told publicly, frankly, but it was the afternoon of the signing of the Paris Agreement. Literally, the Saturday afternoon, David was in my living room in Cambridge. So we had already lived in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts at the time. And uh, David and I shook hands and basically said, yes, let's do this. Let's start this research program. Uh, that was, you know, December, early December, end of November, early December, I think, uh, 2015. So I was still at EDF and I was there for another six months or so. Um, but then I joined David at Harvard to start this research program. I'd be interested to know what uh, was your research progress uh, during your time at Harvard on this research program, uh, but also about your next book, Geoengineering the Gamble. Uh, there were three interesting concepts. You already mentioned one, free driver effect. But some, some of the listeners or some people that haven't read your book yet may confuse it with the free rider effect because it sounds a bit similar. But, and then you also have another interesting term, uh, green moral hazards, uh, which I think that would also be interesting to listeners. Uh, if, I, if I can end my question on this, is that you start off a research program, but at the end of a book, you recommend that we need more research, especially okay. more research funding. And then also yeah. deployment funding. So if you could touch on that, please. Sure, yeah. So, uh, well, I thought it's fair to say that Harvard's program was basically the first university-based research program that sort of went beyond a single professor, right? Like, you know, like lots of things call themselves research program, but often it's basically, you know, a prof and some funding and a few grad students, right? Uh, so in this case, the point was in many ways to establish a much broader research program that goes across disciplines across faculties, you know, still, you know, at Harvard, so within Harvard, but to basically establish this research program that explores the risks, the potential benefits, the net benefits, if you will, the risk trade-offs, and yes, other aspects like the moral hazard of even talking about solar geoengineering, right? So what is moral hazard in this case, right? So as economists, right, we all know what moral hazard is, right? It's sort of this ever-present idea. It works for health insurance. It works for seatbelts. It works for condoms and IUDs, right? It's a, you know, any kind of technofix comes with a moral hazard attached. So does geoengineering, both carbon geoengineering, right, carbon removal, and maybe especially also solar geoengineering. Uh, yeah, actually, in that case, I teamed up with a historian. David Sisimi, uh, to write sort of this 10, 12,000 word historical essay on green moral hazards, where we go through the history of the U.S. environmental movement and in some sense explain it as being defined by moral hazard style thinking, right? It, nuclear power, of course, and lots of examples like this. Solar geoengineering ultimately being one or maybe... Right, like really an, a, a very prominent example of this concept. 
uh, yeah, actually, that ended up you know, it was sort of a peer-reviewed historical essay on the one hand, and a slightly more English version, if you will, with you know fewer footnotes, fewer citations, maybe ended up as a book chapter in Geoengineering the Gamble. And frankly, I would still say this to this day, and I've not since then done some more research on this topic, uh, sort of empirical research, that moral hazard is in many ways the primary reason, not the only one, definitely not the only one, but maybe the primary reason why a solar geoengineering has this somewhat unique role within the climate research community on the one hand and, you know, broader society because it's, you know, moral hazard is real. Moral hazard is a problem. It really is. And fear of moral hazard has frankly led to lots of self-censorship within the scientific community, um, in part for good reason. And I would argue in part for very bad reason, because actually it is possible to turn this moral hazard idea on its head. And when I say that, there's actually the, the sort of very first revealed preference experiment of this sort uh, was led by Christine Merck, a German social scientist, Kiel Institute, uh, who did this research in, I think, 2016 is when the paper came out. Uh, 600 Germans, uh, 200 of them, you know, three groups, uh, and 200 of them were told about solar engineering. And those 200 Germans told about solar engineering were more likely to spend more of their own money on carbon offsets. Okay, so here's the offsets again, right? And now we can sort of argue why offsets may not be the right solution or the right instrument for that matter. But, you know, they're a pretty good proxy for willingness to spend on cutting one owns car one's own carbon footprint and sort of a realistic way to test in a lab, basically, or you know, a revealed preference experiment. Uh, Christina and co-authors did that. And yeah, now actually since then I've worked with her on a much, much larger scale, you know, instead of N of, of 600, N of 200,000, sort of an online revealed preference experiment along these lines. Um, and frankly, one of the conclusions is that, yes, under extreme circumstances, it is possible to get to moral hazard, right? To get to this idea that when you tell people about solar geoengineering as, as, as this beautiful techno fix that will just fix it all, um, that you get people to basically say, oh, cool, I don't need to mitigate, right? We don't need to mitigate. We can ease off climate policy more broadly. Solar geoengineering will just fix it. Um, but frankly, that's a really extreme case. And it's actually, it's very difficult to sort of replicate in our data. So much more uh, realistic is the scenario of um, basically saying, look, if you talk about solar geoengineering in a reasonable, sensible way, uh, what you will get as a result is a fairly reasonable, sensible response, which is, yeah, we should look at it. We should research it. But frankly, we also need climate policy. It can only be part of, and when I say we also need climate policy, right? We need to cut emissions primarily. We need to adapt. We need to do other things um, that go well beyond, you know, just this one simple technique. Yes, right. So I only talked about free driver before, which of course only makes sense in the context of a free rider effect. Uh, so free rider is basically what economists often call the root cause of climate change, right? So we are all free riders here, all, all 8 billion of us, right? In the sense that it, it, none of us individually, uh, even if we could and we can't, uh, would be motivated to basically solve climate change for the rest of us. Uh, because 
you know, we're all free writers. Now, uh, frankly, there have been by now written some very cogent critiques written that actually the core of the climate problem goes well beyond the sort of simple, simplistic idea of a free rider concept. But yeah, sort of this global commons problem, climate is a global commons problem, and we are all free riders here. Why free riders? Well, because the benefits of acting accrue to everybody, all 8 billion of us, whereas the costs of your own action uh, are yours, right? Okay, solar geoengineering in many ways turns this logic on its head. It is cheap, it is fast, it's also imperfect. It's not a perfect solution to climate change. It's not, it can't be, must not be, that's cutting emissions. But the cheap and the fast push it in the opposite direction where in many ways uh, the task here is not to motivate more people to do more, as in cut emissions, but if anything, it's to stop people from doing too much, too soon, stupidly, right? And that's, uh, yeah, that's basically, right? Yeah, turning this global commons problem, the free rider problem on its head. And well, what's the opposite of free rider? It's free driver. Um, I guess technically it's costly driver, but you know, it's not costly, it's free. So a free driver. And yeah, it's basically this idea that uh, it's so cheap and it works so fast, so quickly, uh, and cheap in the narrow engineering sense of the, of the costs, uh, that, yeah, the name of the game, the task here is to channel um, that uh, sort of these desires, these sort of these characteristics in the right direction. And frankly, this is where this call for research comes in, right? So, um, you know, we just don't know enough to frankly decide, vote today, whether we should be solar geoengineering the planet. I mean, frankly, if you were to ask me today, I would say, no, we don't know enough, right? We, we don't. Uh, we need to do the research. Uh, we might want to have actually quite literally a moratorium on deployment, right? With the expressed permission to do research under that threshold. Um, and frankly, that's the grand conclusion of this book, Geoengineering the Gamble, right? Like we've Got to, it's such a gamble. We've got to do the work. We've got to do the research. Uh, and no, the Harvard Research Program right, did not have all the answers, Right, did not come up with all the answers. Yeah, we, knew, we do need more research and actually in an amazing way. So this is how this is going. So actually a couple of weeks ago by now, the White House, uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy came up with a federal, U.S. federal research guidelines um, and by the way, the EU, the European Commission is working on them and so on. But basically, uh, the task here is to, yes, channel, well, fund and channel this research in the right direction to explore the potential benefits. And yes, of course, also the risks, the efficacy and so on of solar geoengineering. Nice. And could you give us, you mentioned some numbers of how much it would cost to do the research and deployment. Uh, could you tell us briefly? Well, okay. So in the book, sort of the, the round numbers, we can sort of order of magnitude, sort of, you know, 10 million-ish dollars, tens of millions of dollars uh, to do, you know, for a, a sensible research program. Uh, so by comparison, the Harvard program, so we raised initially $12 million, it ended up with $16 million of funding, uh, total, not every year, total. And yeah, you know, the call for a federal research program, U.S. federal research program, is basically around five, ten million, fifteen million per year, at least initially. Um, now that's for research, right? Now solar geoengineering, right? You know, why do I call it cheap? Well, I call it cheap 
and many others call it cheap in the narrow engineering sense, because the narrow engineering calculation basically says that yeah, it would cost you know single digit billions of dollars, you know, let's round up and call it $10 billion per year, at least initially, to literally launch a you know, potentially global deployment program of solar geoengineering, you know, ideally not not going from zero to 100 immediately, right? So sort of a slowly ramped up deployment scenario where the investment necessary, the costs are order of magnitude, these 10 billion-ish dollars per year. So that's not free, right? Uh, I certainly couldn't find right? I'd have to sell a couple more books to be able to do this. Uh, and by the way, nobody would should want to do this themselves, right? Uh, that's exactly where lots of this research needs to go, right? How do you channel these characteristics in the right direction? Um, and these single digit billions of dollars, $10 billion or so, uh, ought to be compared to the potential benefits, which are in fact orders of magnitude more. And again, no, not a perfect solution, plenty of risks and so on, even though, right, if there is this technology that potentially stabilizes, helps stabilize global average temperatures, and by the way, not ocean acidification, not other negative effects of climate change, right? Again, highly imperfect, but just the net benefits of keeping global average temperatures from rising further, well, they are in fact vast, right? So this is, you know, the bread and butter of climate economics is calculating the benefits or the costs of unmitigated climate change. And they're not $10 billion a year, they're trillions of dollars a year globally, right? Many trillions of dollars a year globally. And uh, yeah, that's the comparison here. Um, that's the initial calculation that would lead you to believe, yeah, it makes sense to do more research on this topic because look, the benefits vastly, the net benefits vastly out or the costs, um, which in many ways also points to those a benefit cost calculation simply not being the right criterion. Right? It's all about risk-risk trade-offs. It's about the risks of unmitigated climate change and the risks of potentially deploying, thinking about deploying uh, this technology. Uh, thank you. I would like to move on now uh, from focusing on, let's say, your thought leadership publications on your website. I mean, I'll recommend any of the listeners to check, check out gwagner.com, if I'm not mistaken. That's the one, yes. Yeah, and, and, and somehow gwagner everywhere on the, on, the, on the internet. So it's... <laughs> You know, G Wagner at Columbia, gwagner.com, you know, yes, that's, that's okay. Look. Yeah, so uh, there are several interesting uh, articles or article groupings that you have, and if you could touch on them very briefly. Uh, the first one is uh, you've written a lot about the social cost of carbon and uh, the true price of carbon. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on carbon taxes, especially how oil and gas giants uh, think about uh, carbon taxation, which you've written about. Uh, yeah, okay, so maybe the quick version is so, first of all, carbon pricing, social cost of carbon has very little to do with carbon tax, or, or I mean, has a lot to do with carbon tax ultimately, uh, but is is just not the same, right? So like that's sort of often a, I guess a mistake that frankly, lots of us economists often make, sometimes inadvertently, in sometimes sort of confusing the two and then taking it to the sort of political uh, next step, right? Which is to say that, I think it is like 3,000 plus of my closest friends signed this letter arguing for a $50 per ton of CO2 federal carbon tax, rising at the rate of, I think, $5 per year, in exchange for regulatory simplification. 
in Washington, right? And uh, I can tell you actually one of my big failings vis-a-vis -vis Marty Weitzman was to not be able to convince him not to sign this letter. Um, and I can tell you, for example, Bill Nordhaus, to his full credit, did not sign this letter. And in many ways, the sort of the climate economists closest to this kind of research and especially closest to the policy conversations and the political economy, most of them also declined to sign this letter. Why? Well, you mentioned the oil and gas before. Plenty of oil and gas companies, Exxon maybe most prominently, who also support precisely this idea. $50 per ton of CO2 carbon tax in exchange for regulatory simplification. Okay, well, again, take a step back and think about why they will support this. Well, why do you support a $50 carbon tax on your own product? In order to avoid a higher carbon tax, carbon price on your product. And of course, that's exactly what's happening here, right? So, you know, regulatory simplification for stationary source pollutants, that was the full wording here, is precisely basically saying, okay, let's get rid of all these costly regulations and replace them with a beautiful, simple federal carbon tax. And yeah, I mean, you know, beautiful and simple sounds pretty good, sure. But of course, right, it's about the shadow price. It's about the full cost of policy in this case relative to what the cost should be, right? So yes, right, a lot of my research in this area is on pricing climate risk, making sense of the unknowns, the unknowables, and trying to quantify tipping points, for example, and translating it into this quantity called the social cost of carbon, right? What each ton of CO2 uh, should, and frankly does cost society, right? All 8 billion of us, but of course the polluter doesn't pay. And frankly, well, I mean, actually by now we know that the, sort of the update of the Biden administration to the US social cost of carbon, that the round central figure that everyone has talked about used to be $50. Now it's $200, right? Um, and sure, right, if the social cost of carbon is $50 and we all believe that that's the right number, then, you know, Exxon and Again, 3,000 of our closest friends uh, signing this statement saying we should get rid of all other regulation, just have $50. Yeah, that might actually be a worthwhile trade, right? If $50 is the right number and you can get there by trading away some other things, then that trade might be worthwhile. Well, if the right number is $200 and there are actually lots of policies in place that are you know, akin to those $200, you don't want to trade those away for a carbon price, carbon tax, that's $50, much, much lower than what we now believe the social cost of carbon to be. Right? Um, so yes, it matters how high this number is. It matters a lot. Uh, getting it right is important. I also should add immediately, there is no single such number, right? Lots of risks, lots of uncertainties. There's a large range, potential range, for that social cost of carbon. Um, you might call the $200 the lower bound or a reasonable lower bound, a reasonable partial estimate for this social cost. And you know, the more of the currently unquantified uncertainties we are able to quantify, the higher that number is going to be. In many ways, it can only go in that one direction. And then there are all the unquantifiables, all the unknowns and unknowables. And, you know, there too, right, 
most of these climate risks, uncertainties point in one and only one direction, which means the true number, the true cost of each ton of CO2 emitted is much, much higher still, potentially much, much higher still. Thank you. I'd like to move on to net zero targets, but more specifically, what the response is in different geographic regions. I know you're very well versed in net zero targets. You, you wrote a, a case study with Bruce Usher, who I recently interviewed mm. for uh, the cost to achieve net zero. And he also talked about Exxon in his recent book. You've written a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and its green inflationism or anti-inflationary effects. Could you touch on that? But also, uh, what's the EU response to it, uh, to, to the IO, which which is also a very interesting dynamic? Absolutely, it is. Uh, so actually, okay, so full credit on this one goes to Isabel Schnabel, by the way, who is this prominent German economist and a member of the European Central Bank's executive committee, who came up with this term, greenflation, fossilflation, or three terms, greenflation, greenflation fossilflation, and climateflation. Okay, what do they mean? Well, Climateflation is basically right increase in prices because of unmitigated climate change, climate catastrophes leading to upward pressure on prices and explaining a part of inflation. Inflation is, wait, if we all jump to renewable energy right now, well, renewable energy is going to be more expensive as a result if everyone wants it, right? Supply demand. That might drive inflation. And fossilflation. In many ways, the big one here, right, is uh, what's the component, the, the portion of inflation attributable to high fossil fuel prices or fossil fuel prices in general and the you know, fluctuation of these prices and so on. Um, and actually, so, you know, obviously, you know, in part due to the Putin's invasion of Ukraine, right, so February 24th, 2022, last year, uh, actually, not just then, actually, prices were pretty high before already, fossil fuel price. Uh, but then, yes, fossil fuel prices jumped even more so. And frankly, at the time, when you looked at inflation uh, and the components of inflation, fossil fuel, fossil energy was at least half of Inflation, right? So over half of uh, inflationary pressures were due to high, surprisingly high fossil fuel prices, i.e. fossilflation, right? Well, hence the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, right? Sort of very aptly named um, and in many ways um, a, at the most ambitious climate policy ever passed in the U.S. focused on getting the U.S off fossil fuels with this fossilflation idea front and center, and by the way, also addressing greenflation front and center, right? In the sense that, yes, it takes subsidies on the clean, green, lean, mean energy front, right? To get us off fossil fuels, subsidize the alternative, and in part, well, very directly address fossilflation and in part also directly address greenflation by basically saying, you know, we need to increase the supply of low carbon, high efficiency alternatives to our fossil based infrastructure, fossil based economy. So yes, you know, three cheers for the Inflation Reduction Act. And by the way, three cheers for all three laws, Inflation Reduction Act, Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and Chips and Science Act, which put together by some estimates of something like $2 trillion, trillion with a T, worth of investments in the U.S. economy on the clean energy front over the next decade. 
okay, you asked about the European response, right? Well, the direct response at the time from many European politicians, understandably so, was to basically say, oh, wow, they are subsidizing their own industry. That is bad for us, right? This is sort of the beggar the neighbor, right? So, and frankly, yeah, you could point in you know, fall 2022, you could point to individual examples where you know, Tesla was building a gigafactory in Berlin, Brandenburg, and they were, at the time, there were sort of these stories about how they were rerouting equipment meant for the Berlin factory uh, to a factory in the US, right? And sort of the Inflation Reduction Act is to blame. And, you know, you can't blame the European politician who basically looks at this example and looks at the headline and says, this is bad, right? So, you know, Q von der Leyen and Macron and so on going to Washington and basically, you know, telling Biden uh, their side of the story, right? I think the bigger picture, the real answer in many ways is, is very different. And actually, this is, I think the best analysis is actually a close colleague of mine here at Columbia, Connor Walsh, uh, and a, a colleague of his at Yale, who uh, wrote this paper, it's now out as a working paper, uh, called uh, Clean Growth, where they look at spillovers, positive learning by doing spillovers across the planet, and where they frankly conclude uh, fairly convincingly, uh, very convincingly, that investments in U.S., just solely the Inflation Reduction Act, U.S. clean energy investments with all these domestic provisions and so on, right? So subsidizing U.S. domestic clean energy production leads to an increase in GDP in the U.S., yes, and not just during the 10-year the period, but also after, and an increase in global GDP, and especially also when you dig more deeply into the numbers for Europe, for example, or any other jurisdiction, any other country, region um, that they have data for, increase in Europe's GDP because of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Why? Positive spillovers, right? So U.S. learning by doing subsidies uh, make not just U.S. industry more productive, it increases productivity in Europe, for example. So Europe's GDP goes up because of the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. Or put differently, Right, the message here to, frankly, European or any other policymaker is to say, you know, first of all, right, don't complain. This is good for you too. And by the way, yeah, join in, right? Join this clean energy race very directly. Um, you know, Europe in many ways has this structural advantage that they are also pricing carbon in a big way. Uh, the emissions trading system and carbon taxes, other policies which the U.S. does not have at the federal level, right? So Europe has this advantage that they are already nudging, uh, pricing things in the right direction on the demand side. Well, do you, Europe, also subsidize your own domestic clean energy industry? Um, and right, there's often talk of sort of the race to the bottom and so on. Well, in this case, it's very much a race to the top. Right? We know we need to price the negative externality and the positive, learning by doing externality, much, much more. So right? price and subsidy. Okay, well, let's nudge each other toward ever higher, ever more optimal climate policy in the broadest sense possible. And yeah, that means Europeans should be brushing up on their English and writing thank you notes to U.S. households. Right? I, I, sort of, I used to talk about how Americans need to brush up on their German 
and write thank you notes to German households and Chinese households, by the way, for subsidizing the solar PV learning curve, right? the Germans on the demand side, the Chinese on the supply side. Well, in this case, it's uh, it's the inverse, right? So writing thank you notes to U.S. households. Uh, thank you. You mentioned China, and I would like to hear your perspectives on both India and China. You mentioned China that you had previously worked with the NDRC, and they have a 2060 target, but India has a, a 2070 target, and you call both these countries the climate G2. So uh, what's your take on, on these two countries here? Interesting. Actually, okay, so uh, maybe a bit of nuance there. So I, what this paper I think you're referring to is arguing that everybody else calls U.S. and China the climate G2, right? Sort of the G2, I mean, you know, there's plenty of Gs around, right? There's the G7 and there's the G0 world, according to Ian Bremmer, and there's the G20. and so, G um, Wagner. And then, uh, exactly, right. <laughs> and then there's the G2, right? And uh, so we did this analysis uh, that basically I, I'm still fairly convinced of the of the outcome here that argues um, that uh, it's not so much that China should be considered to be part of the G2, but that the counterweight to the U.S. in many ways is India. As in China by now has sort of entered the European level climate middle class globally, if you will. So on the one hand, they have you know, sort of middle of the road emissions, right? Not as high as in the US, not as low as uh, they could be. Uh, so eight, 10 tons per capita. And at the same time, yes, China actually does have fairly ambitious, again, not ambitious enough, but fairly ambitious domestic climate policy targets, right? And it's not so much just sort of the long-term net zero 2060 target. That's important too. But much more importantly, it's the, you know, what's in the 14th five-year plan? What's in the current five-year plan and the next one? And the, the immediate prospect of peaking emissions. So it used to be that the goal was basically, or it still is the goal, I think, um, peaking emissions by 2030, peaking domestic emissions in China by 2030. Well, the way things are going, it looks like China is peaking its emissions by 2025, right? I mean, it still means that emissions are currently rising, and that is a problem, right? In the US and Europe, they're already going down. Um, but, well, you know, China, of course, started from a much lower level, right? And because of its policies, because of the rapid deployment of renewables, rapid urbanization, by the way, which also contributes positively here, um, relatively speaking, right? If sort of, if if everyone gets increasingly you know, wealthier, uh, it's a much better to be in the city where emissions are lower per capita than to you know, single family homes in the suburbs, basically, as the big climate pariah. Um, so yeah, China seems to be peaking its emissions by 2025, following current trajectories. Um, and you know, that is good, right? It's not, in many ways, you know, it might not be good enough. It's not good enough, right? We are still warming the planet as we speak. Um, but it's fantastic news, especially relative to where projections were relatively recently, where it was a reach goal for China to peak its emissions by 2030, and suddenly a peak in by 2025 is well within their reach. Uh, awesome. We're now reaching the near end of this uh, amazing interview. And I'd like to ask, let's say, advice from you to our listeners. So I have uh, two questions. Or one is, what's your advice to uh, future and aspiring uh, climate environmental economists? What sh should they learn from, let's say, your approach to doing research as they try to progress in the early stages of their career? Well, first of all, congrats. You've chosen the right field. Uh, you know, this is a pretty exciting area to be in, uh, largely because a lot is happening, 
right? So, you know, we spoke about negative climate tipping points and so on. Okay, there are positive socioeconomic tipping points all around, right? So the clean energy revolution is only accelerating as we speak. And yes, it takes a lot of brain power and a lot more, you know, initiative, if you will, to accelerate it even further, right? And push things further in the right direction. So, you know, first point, welcome. Now, second, I guess, uh, you know, this is sort of a broad point about research in general. I would say, you know, very broadly speaking, uh, there are hammer people and there are nail people. There are people who, fall, who, who focus on the hammer, on the tool. And in many ways, it's the more traditional way in academia, right? You develop a tool, some fancy econometric technique during your PhD. Uh, you publish a few papers showing how important and valuable your tool is. You get tenure based on your tool, and eventually you win the prize, right? The Nobel Prize based on this awesome tool you developed in your 20s, right? Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, no, nothing wrong with that, right? But as a climate economist or someone focused on the nail, the topic, climate, right? You are not following this traditional path in many ways, right? You are not developing this one tool, uh, the hammer, and then you go around for the rest of your career and, you know, you don't care about the topic. You don't care which nail you hit. You just, you know, you apply it to whichever data set you can find. And in many ways, well, you know, again, that's the more traditional thing to do in academia. As a climate economist, in many ways, you're defining yourself by the nail. You're defining yourself by the topic. And, uh, you know, maybe the, the, the one piece of advice is, is that's an okay thing. That's a good thing. You know, the um, uh, prior generation of academics, right, may not have looked at the world this way. They define themselves by discipline, right? They're an econometrician, a labor economist, a public economist, and so on. A climate economist says, well, let me borrow from each of these disciplines. Let me not care about what the hammer is. Let me develop the hammer from scratch when I need one. Uh, let me not define myself by the tool, but I will borrow, I will develop, I will apply whichever tool is necessary in order to answer the question. And, you know, that's a different way of looking at the world. I think it's an important way. It's a necessary way. And it's increasingly a way to, frankly, uh, you know, well, get ahead in academia as well, right? Because it's increasingly accepted to basically define yourself by oh, wow, I care about this topic. I know a lot about this topic. I would like to know even more about this topic. So I collaborate, right? Okay, I mentioned before this 10,000-word essay with a historian, right? I don't think, I, I don't know what I will ever again collaborate with a historian on a 10,000-word essay, right? It's certainly a very, very different approach to research than from what an economist, an econometrician and so on would do. Well, for something like the green moral hazard story, I'd like to think that it's very much appropriate and important and crucial to look to, in this case, history as a discipline and say, let's shine a light on this particular nail by using that particular hammer that, you know, my co-author is a specialist in, I am not. But, well, that's when, actually, I guess when you go to gwagner.com slash team, uh, which is sort of shortcut, right, for all my collaborators, there is, uh, actually, I, 
this is not going to sound silly, but I don't actually know how many, but it is many, 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 it might, have, it might be a hundred or more by now, collaborators, um, often in many ways in sort of one-off exercises, sometimes two or three papers that came out of it, but very different hammers applied to this particular nail nail being climate, energy, environmental economics. Uh, that's a really good answer, and I really like it. Uh, last question, what's your advice to the students that you teach at Columbia who want to become, from a more practical standpoint, the next climate investors, entrepreneurs, or policymakers? I saw you had a paper on the SPB collapse and its implications on uh, clean tech, but uh, yeah, what's your advice to them? Well, here's the exciting thing. So uh, I'm completely new here. I, um, I came to Columbia Business School a year ago. I taught my very first class uh, as a full-time faculty here in spring, this past spring. Um, and I can tell you, so I taught class of 75 students and there was a wait list initially of like a couple hundred students out of, so every MBA class has 800 people. So 1600 total and something like half of them are interested in, want to actively take classes on climate right? That's exciting. That is really exciting. No, I mean, no, so first of all, it makes me feel good about, you know, my measly life, right? Like, wow, cool. Like I'm popular, right? Like nobody knows who I am. And, you know, they stand in line to, to take my class, right? Cool. Uh, no, but more importantly, right? It just shows that like climate is not some tangential issue, right? Climate is not this thing that, you know, you like you check the box, right? Like you check the ESG box, right? Like, yeah, let's do that too. You know, if you can afford to think about it, Let's do that too, right? Like, let's worry about checking the, the social responsibility box, right? No, not at all. It is core. It is a core theme of, look, if you care about financial risk, you better care about climate risk. You better know about climate risk, right? If you care about, uh, you know, finance in general, right? Like, if you see yourself as a VC investor, right, a venture capital, climate, Clean tech is one of the more exciting spaces you can be in. If you are interested in private equity, climate is one of the more exciting spaces you can be in. If you're interested in consulting, climate is one of the more exciting spaces to be in. And, you know, in this case, people, students voting with their feet, right? It is obvious that that is the case. So, yes, in many ways, the short piece of advice is, you know, again, welcome, right? This is an important area, an important field, an important nail to focus on, regardless of what you think your hammer is. Climate is not this tangential thing. It is core, it's front and center. Climate risk is financial risk. And as trite as it sounds, but risk is equal to opportunity, right? When you say, oh, this clean transition is going to cost us trillions, yeah, those, that's trillions of investments. And, you know, don't take it from me, but right when BlackRock says currently 25% of our investments are net zero oriented and by the end of the decade, we expect three times as many, 75% of our investments to be net zero oriented, right? Well, that's both forecast and target. And it is basically saying that this is how the world is going. So join us. Uh, amazing response. I should applaud, but it, it won't be good <laughs> for the mic. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate this interview and sharing all your personal and professional insights. 
I look forward to your future work on G. Wagner or your next books. Have, have a great day, uh, you and your family and your colleagues in uh, New York. Thank you. This was fun. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.